we've talked about change in the last episode. We're going to talk about a different C word. No, not that one. We're going to talk about cooperation. the podcast we recorded after by-elections in which in Tamworth and Mid-Bedfordshire the Labour won seats, previously safe Tory seats, from the Conservatives with 20-point swings overturning 20,000 majorities and the Tory line was that's fine because there wasn't really a swing because no one really likes Keir Starmer. Did we mention he's a knight? And that all felt a little bit strange. And we talked about that at the time. The impression I get from the Conservative Party conference is, I don't think the Conservatives really understand the Labour Party. And that's fine, because if you understand the Labour Party properly, you go mad. You go, actually, you, you wouldn't function really on a daily basis. The problem I think that the Conservatives have is they're still trying to pretend that the Labour Party is led by Jeremy Corbyn. And it really isn't led by Jeremy Corbyn. So when you try and say that the Labour Party is the party of just stop oil or is taxing meat, it, it just doesn't work because that really isn't the party that Keir Starmer was. It does feel a little bit like in the run up to 1997 when well, one, of the, one of my favourite charity shop buys that a friend got me was a game called Hypocrisy, which is essentially is a board game produced by Tory Central Office in 1996. And it's a bit like Monopoly, but it's hypocrisy. And the whole point, I, I, will, I will spare you the full details, but essentially it tries to paint Tony Blair as in hock to the trade union barons, and obviously they call them barons, trade union barons. You'll be shocked to hear, Steve, that Tony Blair wasn't really in, in hock the trade union barons. Almost to the extent where they ended up battling him on a number of key areas throughout the entirety of his uh, premiership. Almost. I think this is part of the problem. Like we, we've, we've sort of talked around the fact that the Conservatives don't really seem to have a proper election strategy. But I think part of that is because they haven't really understood who their opponents are and what the opponents think and what the opponents are trying to do. Partially, there's there's an element of that, but I also think it's just because the knee-jerk reaction that the they they have is to just go ah Labour Labour is left wing that we know that doesn't resonate well broadly speaking with the electorate, um, and uh, you know they tried to do the same thing with Tony Tony Blair as you say with the hypocrisy stuff they went around accusing Blair of being like a communist. Like, literally, there are articles from the Daily Mail and the like which accuse him of being a communist, and it's like this is Tony Blair. Like, like even like at the time, you don't look at Blair and go, "This man is about is uh, you know vastly in favour of of, uh, of Leninism or Stalinism." I, I think it's fair to say that Blair would have been fairly on the right of the Communist Party. <laughs> His revisionist wing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but and so it's just the 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 knee jerk reaction is when when they don't know what else to do is to just try and basically 
throw mud at the wall um, and see what sticks. And one of the few things that they know they can kind of go back to, and it will resonate to a degree with a certain element of their core vote, um, is... Uh, you know, liberal, left-wing uh, communists who are going to destroy Britain and they're all unpatriotic and all of that sort of stuff. One of the reasons why everything kind of like went down the drain with Corbyn was because there was an element, at least a little, little grain of truth to a number of the traditional like allegations that the Tories like to throw at the Labour Party. And when there's truth to it, it, it sticks. But when it's Keir Starmer, well, as you say, it's it's not Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party anymore. And it's quite clear that it's not. So you need better attack lines. But they don't have any attack lines because that for them to have attack lines means they need to agree on certain elements, which, as we've discussed on, on previous episodes, they can't agree whether they're going after the red wall or the blue wall. And so they're trying to do both, but they can't. And therefore they're left with nothing left but mud to throw about Starmer somehow being the Stalinist. But it's also, I think, because there's that right-wing media ecosystem that we, we sort of talked about because uh, one of my more foolish predictors for movers and shakers was Andrew Neil when Andrew Neil was relaunching GB News. And... It's been interesting to see the extent to which the the rise of GB News and the amount of Conservative MPs who then appear on GB News means that you have this this sort of right-wing conspiracy ecosystem that's coming into the Conservative Party, very much taking its populist mindset from Donald Trump and the Republican right. And so you end up with the Tory party conference with people talking about conspiracies over 50-minute cities, you end up with, I think, Claire Cotino, who someone from the Institute for Government said, you know, a year ago, a bit at Tory party conference, we were talking about the, the problems of fake news and the need to have truth in politics, who then, this conference was talking about how Labour had plans to tax meat. With no actual policies announced in that regards or anything. But that's very... It feels very American, yeah, really. It, it is. It's what they could do. It's what they could do. It doesn't matter whether they've said they're going to do it. It doesn't matter whether or not there's been any indication. They could do it. It's part of the, uh, the, the Joe Biden thing, isn't it? Because, and if you're listening, hello, Patrick. And we should definitely talk about America because apparently stuff has been happening in America. Oh, just a few. They've got a speaker and everything now. It's I know. amazing. Um, but I feel like one of the big attack lines from the American right over the climate policies of the Democrats has been this idea that the American beef burger will no longer be a thing. Um, I think I'm right in saying that, aren't I? Yeah, yeah. It, it, like, I've not come across it, but like that sounds about right. Um, it's certainly the sort of well, nonsense that they'd, uh, they'd spew. In, in the sense that if we need to do our best for the planet, we need to eat less meat. Mm-hmm. But that means you can't actually have a, a quarter pounder every day. I mean, very few people would be having that anyway, but yes. I, I don't know. Have you seen the Guy Fieri show? I no, assume, that is true. <laughs> I, I assume people are having eight of them a day. <laughs> One of my least favourite things about British politics is the Americanization of it. And it's not just a case of it's the Republican style of talking points coming over to the, U, to, to, to the UK on the right. It's the, the language of the... Uh, 
of, of, of the, the left in the US coming over and infiltrating the, the, the discourse of the UK left as well. Like, you know, you talk about um, uh, the Green New Deal when the New, New Deal has no relevance to, to, to Britain or British history. Yeah, people who are political know what it is and you can kind of work it out, but you, there's a better thing to call it. You just talk about a green industrial revolution, everyone goes, oh, I know what that is. Um, so there is a massive thing about the the widespread, I guess, what's the best way to put it? Just the widespread, all-encompassing nature of American culture and American news that just leads it, that just bleeds into everything we 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 do, and as a result of that, you know, whichever side of the political divide divide you're on, elements of the Republican or Democrat. Um, discourse seep into it and unfortunately the uh, republican seepage seems to be very much the absolute nuttery of conspiracy theorists and just absolute denial of reality and i think just just to move us back on to the sort of the psychology of parties and the tory party psychology in particular it was just very strange seeing these figures who really are not popular to the public, like Liz Truss and Nigel Farage. I don't think Boris Johnson was there, but I'll kind of lump him in as well. These figures who are very, very divisive. I th again, I think it's forgotten that, okay, John Johnson is seen as being popular with voters, but actually he had historically bad approval ratings as Prime Minister. He just happened to be up against the leader of the opposition who had even worse personal ratings than Johnson did. But there just seems to be that so much lack of self-awareness that if you look at PM's approval ratings, and often they all go up and down, but it's essentially a, a sort of long, steady decline. Liz Truss just looks like road runner off a cliff. Yeah. Just straight down. One, one budget, and then it was gone. Well, the pension funds. So, yeah. And, and just, just this idea that, at least when Johnson was being lionised at Tory conference, he was generally doing it from the space of he'd won a, a mayor of London, a Labour city, pretty convincingly, and seen like the future of the party. This is when Michael Heseltine was lionised at the Tory party conference. He was seen as this great modernising figure, you know, done this stuff for Liverpool, regenerated Canary Wharf, you know, big intellectual heft there. It's like the guy who wrote Shut Up In Your Face getting like a massive standing ovation at the Grammys. It just doesn't... Make yeah. any sense it, to me? It, it, fundamentally, the the conservatives, as we said, as we we're saying, though, they've got you've got the American seepage, but the, the 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 core thing is they're now just falling into the same trap that the Republicans have done, where they've gone, aha, and going back to what we've previously discussed, we're we're disrupting things. So we've got the Tea Party, but then the Tea Party becomes the mainstream, but the main and then still isn't able to deliver what ideologically they were meant to deliver. So you move to the right, and suddenly you end up with the Freedom Caucus or or, or whatever, and, and so on and so on and so on until you end up with where we are now with the uh, with Donald Trump and uh, and uh, uh, you know a Congress which can barely elect a Speaker of the House because 
like the Republicans who can barely find someone that's acceptable to everybody else. Well, the one and the one they've found is acceptable. Thought that homosexuality should be criminalised. Yeah, indeed. That's uh, right, isn't it? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. like uh, the, the, he's certainly on the record as uh, basically saying. Um, if uh, if women were forced to uh, have more children, uh, then we wouldn't have to re- rely on immigration. And therefore, if we want to cut immigration, well, you can do the the mental arithmetic there. Um, yeah. So you've got that. It, it kind of like dr- I think extremist drift is probably the way to put uh, the the best 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 way mm-hmm. to put it. Because it's not like the Overton window shifting or anything. It's just one party moving further and further downwards in a in a spiral and the tories are now starting to do that it seems which you know in in some ways that's could arguably be a good thing because it means they ain't going to get anywhere anywhere near power for the next 10 15 years if they do go down that route further or it just means that it's inculcated in one of the two main parties that makes it very difficult to get rid of really yeah potentially um and i think it's it's the problem i think it is it's also when you have your politics sort of based on betrayal and again that we, we i think especially you mentioned the benite left in the late 70s early 80s as being an example of this and you can definitely see that attitude as well in the attitude of members of the erg over brexit where there was the one true Brexit and any deviation from that is betrayal even when you try and make it work fit reality to the extent you've now got David Frost who literally authored Boris Johnson's Brexit agreement talking about how terrible it is without any form of self-awareness really um, and, I, and that feels very American that feels how you ended up with the Tea Party um, and I think it's especially when when you have a in the 50s, the Tory party would have had about 2 million members and would have knocked on doors all across the country. I, I think there's a footage of the 51 election in the Tory party chairman. I think it's Lord Walton, but I can't exactly remember. Sounds about right. But he says, you know, he talks about the hundreds of thousands of doors that were knocked on polling day itself. Being a 2 million people, that's a mass member organisation. When your membership goes down to about 18 people, all of whom are 93, then suddenly you end up having your candidates picked from a very small self-selecting group of members. That's how you end up with people like this trust. And, and so Will Braverman. And it's, well, the next Tory leader, presumably. And so I think it's really hard to see how you get out of that doom loop without proportional representation. I'll bring it back to the constitutional. <laughs> Actually, so I'll move on before, you know, <laughs> lose any other... Uh, <laughs> We've already gone 15 minutes. We can't do the PR talk now. <laughs> Let's talk about the Labour Party. That'll be nice and quick. So I think in contrast, the Labour Party and certainly the group that run the Labour Party at the moment are very, very painfully self-aware. And that in a way can sort of be a good thing and in a way really not. I feel that's kind of embodied by the 1992 election. And there, was a few, there are a few hours in the spring of this year where you had a lot of fashionable right-wing commentators saying that Rishi Sunak had a path to victory. And they all mentioned 1992, despite the fact that it literally isn't 1992. But I think you can really tell that the team around Keir Starmer worry about 1992 constantly. 100%. Partly because they are they all, either they worked for New Labour or were around the Labour Party then, 
or have grown up with the uh with with, with Blair and Brown. exactly that where it is the election was essentially thrown away it, it should have been won by labor it wasn't and it was yeah it, it, it's almost like held down as being the, the the tax bombshells like the the popular reason as to why it didn't uh why labor didn't win um which that was probably an element of truth to that but like all of these things it's going to be multiple things in all and uh yeah it's starmer's team are very much as you say very very cautious i would actually go as far to say overly cautious in some in some regards it feels like if we were at the point zero before starmer and his team go ah well we have to be at point 100 we need to be the complete opposite of it when actually reality and the polling and everything means we can be at 75 or 50 and we're still actually completely fine and there's not actually a major risk there but the paranoia of that 92 scenario is very much in uh, kind of like in ingrained in everything that the Starmer's leadership is doing, that they are just... I can almost see it being a situation where we end up get some, almost similar to, to Blair, where we can get a stonking majority and then we don't do anything necessarily with it. Oh, that's an incredible indictment <laughs> on 13 years of Labour government, Steve. You know what I mean, though, in terms of like the, the broader, like, like, like what could have been done with the huge uh, mm. majorities that we have, because again, very similar to Starmer, massive landslide in '97, committed to Tory spending plans for the most part. Okay. Similar situation happening here. I feel contractually obliged to mention minimum wage short stuff. Yeah, 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 absolutely. One hundred percent. I'm not saying Blade did nothing. Blade did a hell of a lot. I know you're not. I, I just, you know, I have my <laughs> my people, my conscience <laughs> to assuage before we start. Uh, but I, I so. I wonder if this is partly, it, 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 it's partly, I think, the price you pay for eternal vigilance, maybe, mm. and the fact that it's almost like the yin and yang of the Labour Party, where very, very, very broadly, you either have people who say you're on the left wing of the Labour Party who care about policy and want us to announce a lot of, they want us to announce a lot of policies in the same way like the 27, so the 2017 is your best case, 2019 is your worst case, where it becomes a shopping list of policies no one really trusts you to deliver and s someone can find an issue with one of those policies. And then, uh, and actually 1983, I suppose, is an example of that as well, where essentially John Golding got the NEC to dump all of the policies in the manifesto so the left would be blamed for the defeat. Meanwhile, that means that then you have the sort of more moderate right wing of the, of the, of the Labour Party that goes, every time we have a list of policies, we lose the election and therefore we are going to do, we're going to try and be as cautious as we can because we need to be cautious and incremental about this. Mm -hmm. And it makes it, very, because there's that yin and yang, it makes it very hard, I think, to have that middle ground. As you say, that kind of 50, 75 Maybe caution. Maybe 25 in some areas, but like it doesn't that, need that, to be. Yeah. 25 sounds, if we're going on 100, 25 yeah. sounds undercautious. Potentially. By the definition. Yeah. But, but strict it, moderate podcasting yeah. <laughs> all things but I, I don't i don't know a way around that other than it's a culture change that's literally the only way it can happen um maybe just winning a few elections I mean, poten poten potentially <laughs> like it, it, it could easily be like uh that's the sort of thing that that could shift it but you are right that it is such an it, it's just such an ingrained part of how the labor party operates that you have this just 
big swingometer between um you know daring to hope and optimism about policy or whatever and just oh god it's been 10 years and we haven't won an election everything's gone to gone to gone to crap we need to win this if we don't britain will be destroyed so let's just you know keep <laughs> keep 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 everything as moderate as we possibly yes. can because arguably we are in dereliction of our duty if we don't win this election <laughs> i don't think that was quite harry wilson's pitch in 1964 <laughs> the, the, the pitch wasn't we will be dis- destroyed by the white heat of technology yeah. the election it's very different um but I think you see that utter that 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 sort of achingly self-conscious, painfully self-aware nature of, of particularly the Labour leadership at the moment around what's happening around uh, around the the what what's the best way of putting it the about about the row that has brewed within the party over Keir Starmer's comments over Gaza and. I think that's partly because the Labour Party has an amazing ability, God bless it, to make everything about itself. But I think it's also because if you hear the Keir Keir Starmer interview with Nick Ferrari, I would say Keir Starmer, which is a kind of weird (laughs) Keir Starmer, Nick Ferrari portmanteau, would be a terrifying figure (laughs) over the central ground of British politics. Um, But where, where I think you can almost see in his head, the I cannot allow the Labour Party to be dragged in the sort of rounds that it was dragged in in the Corbyn era. Yeah. And I, I think Steve Richards makes this point very well, uh, that it's not just Keir Starmer that's done that, it happens to Tony Blair over Iraq, because one of the reasons why Blair felt it had to be close to the Americans is because the party was perceived as anti-American in the 80s when they were lost. It's also partly why Ed Miliband probably didn't vote for airstrikes on Syria. Because it was too similar to Iraq. Exactly. And so um, it's why I think you end up with a situation in which Starmer's obviously frazzled and tired and done about 18,000 interviews over conference and has misspeaks. It's not really clarified very well. You have a lot of misinformation going around on Twitter, especially about the airstrike of the hospital that I think happened around this, the same time, which it looks like the wrong end of the stick was gotten pretty quickly on that. Um, I'm going to gloss over that because, yeah. you know, we're not a Middle Eastern podcast because like Tony Blair, we know more about the politics of the Labour Party than the politics of the Middle East. Um, but essentially, that's how you end up with that mass, this big row. Yeah, and it all links back again back to that, that cautiousness, and especially in regards to you you know the, the 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 Middle East with 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 Israel, like that spectre of our labour was institutionally anti-Semitic, very much hanging over every single word Starmer says. Like it would not shock me if in if in terms of it, when when memoirs or diaries are released or whatever, Starmer go Starmer ends up kind of admitting I did not believe a word I said in regards to all of this, but I felt I had no choice. Like it's it's that's the sort of commitment like they're going for to the extent where you can you can say that maybe it's morally the wrong thing to do, but I don't even know if it's that. I, who knows? Um, yeah, let's not go down that rabbit let's, hole. Let's let's wait for the diaries. We've been going about twenty twenty five minutes. Shall we talk about cooperation? Yeah. Yes. So, um, I thought one of the interesting things to come out of a conference that was actually the 
the Green Party. So the Green Party decided that they were going to fight a full slate of candidates. They're not going to allow local parties essentially to stand down in favour of another party and fight a progressive alliance. And I think that's really, really interesting. And again, we've talked on the podcast about how the progressive alliance... Doesn't that, function. It doesn't function because voters aren't Lego bricks. And especially you look at the Green Party, um, which has become a... It, again, it, it varies all across the country. So it wins rural seats off the Tories. It wins seats in inner cities off Labour. It wins seats in places like Solihull. And mm. yeah, they, they, win, they, they are capable of winning pretty much anywhere at a council level if they've got the members and if they've got the work going. It's Charles way. Kennedy and Paddy Ashdown's Lib Dems. Yeah. With a different... Work it till you win. With a, a sort of all the... Essentially, the leaflet template has changed. It's not got a bird in it, but it's essentially the same sort of model. Um, but and I'm always struck canvassing for a general election the amount of UKIP voters who I knock up who then it says, they, they tell me that they're voting green. And I think it's partly because, as well as all of that local factor, it's basically they've come, become a bit of a none of the above yeah. anti-politics party. All of which means, therefore, that, and I'm sorry to say this, people who think that the Progressive Alliance is a thing because you spent too much time on Remainer forums on Facebook, but it does not necessarily go that anyone who is voting green is going to transfer over to the anti-Tory candidate because that's not how voters work, it's not how politics work. No, absolutely, and it's... For a progressive alliance to actually function, it would need to be an actual organised thing um, for, for a lot of the time. Otherwise, like you can just rely on tactical voting and that will happen, like, fundamentally. Like, but, and I, I where think, it matters. Well, and actually, Mid-Bedfordshire is a bit of an outlier in this. Uh, but I, I think that let's, the, the kind of situation that happened in mid-Bedfordshire where you have a three-way marginal where both the Labour and the Lib Dems thought there was a chance of winning it, mm -hmm. that happened in a seat in 2019 in Wimbledon, I think it was. Uh, and let's face it, that's a massively different... But, you know, <laughs> that takes it from being a target seat that Labour really needed to get to get a majority to one of the Tories' safest seats. Yeah. It's not really that much of an issue. No. Um, and, and, and if it is, it will be one of those things where just whichever, you know, if, if the Tories are going to lose that seat, it will be whichever, um, like, of Labour or the Lib Dems or, in theory, the Greens, um, work it hardest and will actually be able to, just based on sheer hard work, get people out and and com and committed to the fact that hey, we're actually going to mm. represent you. So it's also a bit of an interesting outlay. I mean, it's uh, going to be a lot of effort for green local parties. I'm guessing to find the the money and the resource to do that. But um, for and because we, we haven't really talked about the greens much recently, but there's apparently four target seats they're going to have. So it's Brighton Pavilion. Uh, yeah, so Brighton Pavilion, Brighton and Hove. Well, no, so Brighton Pavilion, yeah. where Sean Berry's apparently going to try okay. and go. Um, Bristol Central, with Carla Denya, who That's is one of their colleagues. It is, I think, yes. Um, who, uh, best known, I think, for the Living on a Prayer, John Burko mashup. Uh -huh. Adrian Ramsey in Waveney Valley, 
and North Herefordshire as well. I think any chance of going for that former MEP. So again, that kind of shows you that we talk about the Tories broad voting coalition. There's the Lib Dem. Oh, sorry, there's the Greens. Yeah, all of the walls, yeah. Steve. All of the time. So they abandoned um, Lucas's seat then. I know she's standing no, that, there. No, that's Brian Pavilion. Is that Pavilion? I thought that. Oh, because it's the new new things, isn't it? Yeah, of course. New boundaries. Will yeah, apply. new boundaries. New, new new names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. But yeah, cool. So I don't. So I think we can say probably very much in not so much progressive alliance cooperation, but probably some form of not even a non-aggression pact, but I think you're right. Voters are going to work out who is best placed and um, where, where they want to vote Labour, Liberal Labour. But also I think we we didn't talk about a Rutherglen by-election. And it's the Rutherglen by-election, I think, that shows that you're going to have anti-SNP tactical voting in yeah. full swing. You've got Labour bouncing back there. And that, I think, is a big problem for the SNP, especially if they're still essentially from their conference was still framing their next election around we want to make this a mandate for independence yeah which the longer they continue to do that but again i think it's a party management thing more than anything else that is why they have to do that um the longer they do that the more and more likely it is that you end up with um you know more more stronger tactical voting against the snp um, what, what I what I will say though is that I did hear um, Hamza Youssef kind of talking about um, uh, talking about like the mandate for for, for for independence in a lot more nuanced terms um, than, uh, than than Sturgeon had previously, and like, he was starting kind of to, to hedge it a little bit where it was just like, and if that's a form of a you know uh, additional powers etc cetera, etc cetera, or, or, or whatever, it's like there's just that little wiggle room there. Where if they could just turn around and say, "Hey, Labour, give us some more powers so that we can claim a win and we're good," like we can, we we, we won't cause you any trouble, and we will we'll probably still have to make a call for this, but we're not going to do it properly. It's uh, interesting. It's, I suppose, a bit like the, the we've talked a lot about the Tories' big voter coalition. I think the SNP are sort of in that similar position where SNP being much more dominant. I think. In Scotland, but you can sort of see their voting. It's an interesting, again, I, I, going back to Steve Rees again, but the the live show that I saw in Birmingham a few weeks ago, it was very much. Do you think with independence, it's um, about leadership or fundamentals? Because obviously, the, uh, you've still got a younger generation who are more pro independence, but it's interesting to see if that will matter given Hamza Yusuf's had a pretty disastrous start not all of it have his making it's yeah. not really helping um, right should we end on disastrousness yeah feels pretty fitting doesn't it right thank you for listening to this uh, James Cram design logo you can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune for Good Times I'm at Paperback Rioter I'm at Acoustic Radical happy plotting <laughs>